Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 36 of Impact Boom. My name's Tom Allen. I'm the director of Sem Positive, and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today, we're speaking with Isaac Jeffries. Isaac Jeffries designs and builds social enterprises in Australia and in the developing world. He works at Business for Development, an NGO that creates sustainable businesses that lift thousands of families out of extreme poverty. Isaac also works with the Difference Incubator as an advisor to social enterprises and not-for-profits who are looking to become financially sustainable. Most of Isaac's work centers around building strong business models. If you can make an enterprise resilient, it has the best possible chance of changing the world. He's also passionate about young people getting involved in social enterprise, both to develop their skills and to find creative ways of addressing important problems. So on today's podcast, we'll discuss Isaac's journey as he shares his experience working in the social enterprise and development sector. We'll get Isaac's insights and perspective on social innovation opportunities, and we'll hear what Isaac believes can be done by governments and the private sector to create stronger opportunities for positive social change. Isaac, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tom. I've really been enjoying the podcast. Fantastic. Isaac, could you please share a little bit about your background and what led you to the work in social enterprise and development sector? I first got interested in business when I was 12. My friend and I, um, when we were in Year 7, started a competitor to our high school's canteen. <laughs> and uh, we, we thought that the prices they were charging were, were too high. We thought their opening hours were too short. And we set up our own I suppose rival selling cans of Coke out of a, out of an old fridge that we found. Classic. And uh, it took about eighteen to twenty four months, but we ended up running them out of business and and, and taking over it ourselves. <laughs> so what I learned a lot from that was that I find I find business really interesting. I find working with customers really interesting, and I, I, it's something that I find um, naturally quite engaging. Yeah. So that then led me to to wanting to to study business at university, and I went to to Swinburne in Melbourne and studied international business. Yeah, I picked Swinburne because they had a program called industry based learning, which is where partway through your degree you can do a one year paid job placement and get a good idea about uh, of what the workforce is actually like. Mm. So I did that. I, I competed and I won a job at, at ANZ, and I got to work at ANZ in their strategy department. And that taught me a few things really quickly, the first of which is it turns out I don't really like finance full stop. I don't really like strategy full stop. It doesn't really get me out of bed in the morning. And what I, I realized I really missed was having that sense of meaning and that sense of purpose behind mm -hmm. what I do. Yeah. So I finished up at ANZ and I turned down a grad job there in favor of working at a place called Servants Community Housing, and that was where I got to use uh, the finance business side of things for something really important. So mm. Servants Community Housing is an organization that helps um, people who are homeless and people with severe mental illness and um, provides an incredible community atmosphere and a really nice place to live. 
Yeah, and what I found was that was a job where if I did my job well, people are genuinely better off for it. And if I do my job poorly, people are genuinely worse off for it. Mm. And I found that really motivating. Um, I then met Bessie Graham and Paul Steele, and they were in the process of um, starting up a business called The Difference Incubator. And The Difference Incubator, uh, or TDI, as I'll probably refer to it during the episode, TDI started with the belief that a social enterprise is this new type of business that can work and it can exist, but it's going to need a lot of help to get off the ground. And so we had a lot of social entrepreneurs who said, we need to take on investment for us to be able to grow and to scale. Mm-hmm. And we had a lot of investors who said, we've got money ready to place, but we need groups who are strong enough that they can actually do something with the investment capital that we can give them. Mm-hmm. And our job was to sort of matchmake and put the two together and create investment deals and create a pipeline of of um, yeah, impact investments that people can put their money to in the future. So I was at TDI for, for three years and I've been there for the last 18 months as an associate. So I get brought in to work with social enterprises who are looking to strengthen their business model. Yep. And my other full-time job at the moment is with a group called Business for Development. And what we do is we build impact businesses that can lift thousands of families out of extreme poverty at a time, usually in the developing world and usually based in agriculture. Very, very interesting. So what are the key learnings then that you've taken from working to build these impact businesses in the developing world? I've had to learn a lot about farming very quickly. I bet. Uh, one of the first things my colleague said to me, um, Paul Vodia, he said, development is agriculture and agriculture is development. So mm. the, the part of the world that we're working in, if you want to help someone, you've got to teach them how to farm. Or you've got to give them the opportunity to earn a lot more from their farming than they're currently doing today. Mm. So what you tend to see is that a lot of the poorest people in the world, they have some land, they might have a hectare of land, yep. and they, they know how to grow some sort of crop. It's usually a, a staple crop or it's um, subsistence, yep. so people eat what they grow. And that's not, uh, that's not a, a good way to earn a, a living. Instead, what you need is you need to have a crop which has a buyer and which has a good price on it. So you, instead of selling you know, corn or, or growing your own vegetables, what you need to be doing is efficiently planting out crops like um, it could be seeds, it could be cocoa or nutmeg or cassava or it could be stevia or something which has a, a, a lot of buyers who want to use it for a high-value product mm-hmm. and then it's really easy to, to pay you a lot more for what you grow. What I've learned from this is that it is really, really hard to build an impactful business in the developing world. I I suppose there's no magic formula. And I suppose what I've seen is that these sort of businesses don't happen on their own. They don't they don't happen in nature. It's something that requires a lot of design and a lot of strategy to try and make it work. I'll give you an example. I believe that there are four things that an impact business needs to do in order to be successful. And I believe it's easy to get any three of those four. Nice. So the, the, the four things that I've, I've noticed, uh, uh, you, you know, you've got to focus on yep. are how many families can we lift out of poverty? Yep. How much can we increase their income? Mm-hmm. What's the internal strength of the business? So the internal rate of return. Yep. And then there's what's the realism of the business? And of those four, 
three are doable. So you can you can build a, a business that you know you can have a, a plan for a business yeah. that engages a lot of people. It lifts them out of poverty, and the business makes money. But the problem is it won't be realistic. Yeah. Or you can make it realistic, but you've got to suddenly work with half as many people, or you can only afford to increase the incomes half as much as you'd hope to. Yeah. And that's where when I say you know strategy and design, it's about you need to be really really diligent and really careful in how you plan everything and and how you identify opportunities and identify buyers in order to build something that's going to be sustainable. Yeah, wow. There some really, really interesting insights, Isaac. So where do you see the most potential in Australia for social innovation then? And are there any particular social or environmental challenges that you're particularly passionate about here? Yes. So um, one of my personal passion areas is around homelessness. Yep. So after I left Servants Community Housing, I then joined their board as, as treasurer. And the, the work that's being done there is, is absolutely incredible. Mm. Outside of that, I think one of the biggest areas for innovation we have at the moment is with the NDIS. I know people have spoken about this at length. I'm not sure that I have much that's new to say, other that I've worked with a lot of organizations in the last six months who are looking to become what they call NDIS ready. Mm. And what I've seen is a lot of organizations would like to have a, a very smooth transition to this new system without changing anything about their own philosophy or beliefs. And I'm not sure that that's going to work out too well for them in the future. Mm. What excites me about this in Australia is that the NDIS is going to force a lot of a lot of providers to treat people with a, with a disability as their customer yep. rather than their beneficiary. And what that's going to mean is that we design a lot of programs that are really well suited to creating employment, to improving social skills, to creating friendships, mentoring, dignity, and meaning. Mm. So there's a lot that's going to come out of this that I think is really good, but I'm not sure that all the groups who are out there today are going to successfully make the leap. Mm. Some really interesting insights there. So what do you see as the most important traits of a social entrepreneur then? I mean, you've obviously worked with quite a few now. So have you seen any patterns there? I have. So I've worked with about 185 social enterprises so far over the last five years. And I suppose the two themes that keep coming up for me are the combination of passion and discipline. Mm. So by passion, I mean, you've got to have someone who's really driven about three things. They've got to be driven about the cause. I've never changed anyone's mind about a cause. I've never said, you know, I know that you really want to save the whales, but you should really care about, you know, immigration policy. That's never happened. But you need to bring that with you. That's something that you need to know a lot about. And it's got to be something that you like to, you know, argue about at dinner parties and that keeps you up at night and that Mm. sort of that sort of thing. The second thing they need to be passionate about is a customer rather than a beneficiary. So it's got to be something where if you're relying on, you know, we need to add a thousand customers, you need to genuinely care about that person and what you're going to do and how you're going to solve a problem for them. Mm. If you see a customer as a cash cow, it's going to be really hard to build things that they desire. And it's, it's really easy to be quite adversarial with them. And the third thing that an entrepreneur needs is to be passionate about their team. Starting any sort of business like this is really tough, and so you need to care about the people you work with. On the discipline side, the the two things that stand out is a a social entrepreneur needs to be really good at saying no to good things in order to say yes to the best things. And that's really the the essence of of strategy for me is it's the ability to make good trade-offs. The other thing I see needs a lot of discipline is, is monitoring the numbers. Um, I really enjoyed something that um, Wouter Kirsten said on an earlier episode of this podcast uh, where he said, cash flow is more important than your mother. 
I thought that's a, that's a really, really good way of putting it. And if, if an entrepreneur comes to us and they start with that approach, it's really easy for us to help them take that even further. But if you have an entrepreneur who doesn't particularly care about the financials, what it means is they're probably going to struggle when things um, get, get difficult. Yeah. Some very interesting insights there, Isaac. So TDI's CEO and founder Bessie Graham recently described the social enterprise movement in Australia as self-obsessed and internally focused, an event called Why We're Breaking Up With Social Enterprise. And this saw Social Traders Managing Director David Brooks respond to say that they see the coming five years as a time for growth for the social enterprise ecosystem in Australia. So how have you seen the social enterprise sector transform and change over the last five years or so? And where do you see it heading? This is quite a, quite a tricky question for me to answer. So I'm going to try and answer it in, in pieces. Yeah. Um, I suppose the first thing for me is I see a difference between where the industry is heading objectively and how most people I know in the industry feel about it at the moment. Yeah. And I think it, it is, it, it's taken me a while to, to sort of process my own thoughts on this. Mm. I suppose it's happy to feel two different emotions at the same time. So what I mean by that is, I think when you look at how our industry has developed, we have a lot to be proud of and I have a lot of optimism about where we're going. Yeah. At the same time, I know a lot of social enterprise founders and investors and employees and, and entrepreneurs who, I mean, they're, they're heartbroken. They've lost so much money. They've lost so much time. They've put so much of, of their heart. They've put their, their houses on the line and they've failed. And it is so hard to be a social enterprise at the moment. Hmm. It's, you know, the, the failure rate for startups is, is astronomically high and there is nothing about being social that makes that any easier. Hmm. It might make it more important. It might add fuel to your fire, but it doesn't make the process of building a business that's financially sustainable any easier. So I know entrepreneurs who have had incredible loss and incredible difficulty and they feel really burnt out. They feel resentful. They feel like they haven't been supported. They feel like investors have neglected or ignored them. Mm. And then I've got investors who feel like we've tipped a lot of money into this and the, a lot of our, our deals have fallen through. Mm. Now, at no point am I saying we should feel sorry for investors or anything along those lines. Yeah. But there's a lot of disappointment out of there. There's, there's a lot of heartbreak out of there and I think that needs to be captured. When I go to social enterprise events, that doesn't seem to be something that's spoken about on the stage. It's the kind of thing that gets spoken about over a beer, but it's not the kind of thing that a lot of us are willing to publicly acknowledge. Mm. It's not a very popular thing for me to say even even now um, because it's not criticism about the industry. It's more criticism about, you know, it, it just feels like we're all experiencing a lot of failure, but no one's willing to, to talk about it. Mm. What I'm also starting to see is that there's a, a sort of like a first generation of people who have been really interested in social enterprise who I know are currently suffering from burnout, who I know are, feel a bit worn out, resentful, and I, I think they might take a step back for a few years. Um, whereas what we're going to see now is social enterprise is really exciting and appealing to, to not-for-profits, to NDIS organizations, yep. and to young people. I see a lot of uni students who, you know, previously the, the theory was you can't do good and make money at the same time, and you say that to a 19-year-old and they go, yeah, of course you can. Yeah, Absolutely yeah. you can. Yeah. And those are the people who are going to be um, fueling our industry for the next five years. I agree in many ways. Uh, having the, the fortune to work with university and high school students, I can certainly see where you're coming from, from a passion perspective with those young people, that's for sure. 
So I'll give you one final example on that. A lot of people I know who work in this industry are critical of thank you water or or thank you group. Hmm. And and I'm not. I love thank you group. Um, Not because I'm their biggest customer, but what thank you have done is they have made social enterprise a household name. It's something that when people go, you know, what is a social enterprise? And I can say, have you bought a bottle of thank you water or have you used their soap? And they go, oh, yeah. And then what that's done is that's planted a seed of it is possible to have impact through buying a product. It doesn't Mm. need to be a charitable donation. It can genuinely be something that is good for you and good for the beneficiary. What that means is that then when you go to to teach these young people about how to build a, a business model that works, they've got a frame of reference that a lot of people, you know, 10 years ago just didn't have. I think that's a really interesting insight. And I think many people might relate that to uh, social enterprise like Tom's, for example. Yes. Uh, you know, where they, they are sort of understand that. And at the same time, that one-for-one model has also seen, I think, quite a bit of critique. But, you know, it's, it's obviously brought uh, that type of uh, business model to the forefront and a lot of understanding. That's exactly right. And I would hope that our industry, you know, in five or ten years' time, if we look back at that and cringe, that's a really good thing for us as a, as a collective. But it was a starting point. It was a way of finding customers. It was a way of getting people on board. And it was a way of yeah, explaining that, you know, it is possible to do good and make money without there being a conflict. Mm. Isaac, we've recently seen the Victorian government launch Australia's first social enterprise strategy to improve sector support. So looking at social enterprise from a policy perspective, what do you believe are the key steps government need to take to help foster and support this sector? I think we're really lucky with the environment that we operate in. And I think the the steps that have been taken are are really good. What I'd want to see is steps that develop resilience rather than grant dependency. Hmm. So I see a lot of entrepreneurs out there who feel like they should be supported by being given grants and, and free money. And it's it, it's actually really quite damaging. If, if you have a business that constantly requires the founder to go away and write more grants, hmm. it's really hard to then focus on actually building up the organization and adding to your customer base and scaling up over time. Mm. I think social procurement's a really interesting opportunity, but perhaps I I have a different perspective to where other people are coming from. Um, I see that social procurement is a really good way of finding new customers, but it's got to be based on self-interest rather than altruism. Mm. So what I'd like to see is social enterprises given more opportunity to to win contracts and win tenders and um, to have people incentivized to support them. Yeah. But that customers support them because it does something in the self-interest of the customer. I would not advocate for regulation that says all businesses must buy from a social enterprise because what that does is it'll, it allows complacency. Mm. I think it should be that the government has the ability to stamp out a lot of um, evil, unethical business practices and sort of raise the minimum standard. And that means that social enterprises no longer have, you know, they're not going to be undercut in the same way that they are today. I don't know many social entrepreneurs who feel like they're suffering from oppressive bureaucracy, I suppose, but I know a lot who are suffering from customer disinterest. Mm. And so I suppose any um, assistance that, that, policy can give in terms of, you know, giving entrepreneurs access to programs and advice and to, you know, um, capacity building is is really, really useful. Mm. But that doesn't mean that that social enterprises should be immune from competition. Yeah, very interesting. So what advice then would you give to businesses who would like to use their business models as a way to generate positive social impact? 
there's a, there's a model I really like to use called the three lenses of innovation. So mm. if you would like to be a social enterprise that is sustainable and impactful, you have to have three things down pat. And those three things are desirability, feasibility, and viability. Yep. I tend to draw these three as a, as a Venn diagram. You can't afford to drop the ball on any of them. And each of them is an opportunity to create really good impact in the world. Mm. So what I mean by that is, desirability is when you you sell a customer a product or a service that innately does something good for the world. So if you can sell them something that's good for their health or it is something that um, educates them or it it advocates a message or if you can, you know, it's it's something where you go, if I can sell, you know, 1,000 more of X, Y, Z, then I've actually improved the lives of dot, dot, dot. And the reason I like this model is that it doesn't rely on you making a profit to have some sort of impact. Yeah. So some groups have, you know, they, they think that the reason they're a social enterprise is because they give their profits away to charity or part of their profits away to charity. And I suppose that makes me nervous because what happens in a year when you don't make any profit? Does that mean you've had no impact? Mm. And generally they'll go, no, 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 of course not. And I go, right. So it, it's the thing that you sell is what gives you the ability to make positive change. So the other category is is feasibility, which is that in the production of your product or service, you've been able to do something good for the world. So that might be um, through your payroll. Yep. So it might be that you're employing um, people with a disability or asylum seekers, or it might be that you use resources that are good for the world. And it might be that, you know, you, I know, for example, uh, Street, who are a social enterprise who are based out of Melbourne. Yeah. One of the things that they advertised a few years ago, that they sold their one millionth coffee. And one of the stats they had on their posters was it said that we have used 123,000 organic free-range eggs. Mm. And I thought, what an odd thing to promote, but I love it. And, you know, three or four years ago, and it stuck with me. Yeah. Your business in the process of operating can support uh, uh, some really incredible things in the world. The other thing uh, for me is uh, viability, which is the surplus that your business creates can be used to, to help people. It can fund education. It can fund clean water. It can fund advocacy. It can fund all sorts of, of good things. But I suppose the model requires you to be making a surplus in order for that to happen. Yeah. One, one final point on this. I, I suppose my favorite type of impact is the one that the customer doesn't notice. So if you, in the future you can run a business – where your customer just bought a product, not because they were feeling generous, but because it solved a problem for them. Mm -hmm. And in the process, they've changed someone's life. For me, that's the dream. That's what I find really exciting. So I look forward to a day when, you know, Nutella's hazelnuts are empowering smallholder farmers somewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. I don't want to have to switch brands of, of Nutella just to feel like I'm a good person. But in the process of buying something quite mundane, you actually have the ability to change someone's life. Yeah, it's an interesting insight. Uh, you mentioned Street, Isaac. So Street are certainly have a, a great name in Australia uh, and in many ways as a reference to uh, Social Enterprise Cafe. So what other inspiring projects or initiatives have you come across recently which are creating positive social change? One of the interesting things about my job is that uh, I work with a lot of companies that no one's going to have heard of. So th- these aren't household names. One of the really inspiring ones I've seen recently is a farmer app in India. Mm. So the app is called uh, Dahat, D-E-H-A-A-T. 
Um, it has no retail presence in Australia whatsoever. Yeah. What this what this app does is it improves the way that farmers communicate with their buyers. It allows them to find better quality fertilizer and better quality seeds. It gets mm. them a better price for their crops. It gives them agronomic advice and support. And it's essentially a series of, of little improvements that can improve farmers' incomes and yields by 3 or 5% at a time. Mm. When you wrap all those up together, you actually have the ability to increase – a farmer's income by about 50% yeah. without them really changing how they farm. And it's this story that I've just found so mind-blowing about how some quite simple technology that we really take for granted on any sort of modern smartphone yeah. has the ability to, to really transform people's lives. Mm. Uh, in Australia, one of the inspiring projects that I've um, been able to see develop is a, a social enterprise called Mr. GP. Um, Mr. GP is attracting some controversy at the moment because it's a – Enterprise designed to get men to go to the doctor. And this is something that men are often quite unwilling to do. And so Mr. GP has gone, how do we change the service design to make blokes more willing to actually show up and make an appointment and, and follow through with it? Mm. And so they, uh, instead of you know fluorescent lights and waiting rooms, they're going to recreate a bar type of situation. And you and your doctor aren't going to speak over a desk. You're going to talk shoulder to shoulder sitting up on stools at a bar and it's a it's a service that that people would actually want to go to mm. it, it sounds different and people naturally resist change but i think it's different in a way that's actually going to save people's lives yeah so that that for me is a really exciting one that i'm looking forward to i'm looking forward to being a customer of theirs when they open oh certainly go and see the doctor and, and have a beer at the same time well that's the thing you know if you want to if you want an aussie bloke to open up about something you, you stick a beer in his hand and a lot of people hear that and they go, oh, that's wrong or you shouldn't mix this or what about if they're alcoholic? And I go, of course they're not going to do it if that's the case. I think a lot of people are really ready to be mm. outraged and ready to be upset. And a lot of the people that are outraged aren't Mr. GP's customers. You talk to most blokes about this and they quietly go, where do I sign? Like how do I yep. sign up? I'll, I'll prepay in advance. They, they love it. But the people who aren't the customers, they don't quite see the value proposition and mm. so they've decided to you know, be upset about it on Twitter. Oh, it'll be interesting to watch them move forward then. So to finish off then, Isaac, what are the top three books that you'd recommend to our listeners? Can I be cheeky? Can I do this in, in two bits? Oh, most certainly. Okay, so I, I have a I have a top three for social entrepreneurs and I have a top three for young people. Oh, great. Um, let's start with the social entrepreneurs. The three books I'd really highly recommend if you're, if you're currently running a, a social enterprise, the first one's called The Art of the Start 2.0 by Guy Kawasaki. Yep. And it is the most down-to-earth, useful, memorable manual about how to actually launch a startup. Mm -hmm. The second one I suggest is called The Advantage by Patrick Lencioni, and it is the best book on organizational health and how to develop culture and how to develop clarity within an organization. And I've seen this go really, really well, and I've seen it go really, really poorly for, for, for leaders who don't do that. Mm. And the third one I'd recommend is a book called Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. So Phil Knight started Nike, and it is the best, honest, uh, confronting um, biography of a startup CEO that I've ever read. It's a really enjoyable book. So, so those are the three I'd recommend for anyone who's actually running a business. Great. If you're a young person and you go, I feel like I'm driven towards working in the impact industry, but I don't have a particular business model that I'm I'm, I'm locked into as yet, yeah. the three books I'd recommend, the first one is called Steal Like an Artist by Austin Kleon. Mm -hmm. um, it's a really enjoyable book and it talks about how to 
I suppose, how to take other people's ideas and combine them with others and, and where creativity and originality comes from. The second one is called One Plus One Equals Three by Dave Trott. And it is one of the best books I've ever read on how to think creatively and how to tackle problem solving in a really unorthodox way. And the third one is called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Mm. And it's essentially a book on perseverance and it's a book on how to tackle problems and how to overcome resistance and how to force yourself to do things that you know are good for you, but that you don't want to do. Mm. Uh, the reason I recommend these three is that you can't unhear them. The the authors each put forward such powerful arguments that I, I, I think it's very hard to disagree with their philosophy and it's really hard to disagree with their, their tactics for how to actually do more with your life and how to think about change and how to think about you know building something that's remarkable. Yeah. Well, fantastic. There's some really, really good books recommended there, some of which have been recommended before, which says says a lot, I think, when we start hearing uh, people talking about similar books. So that's, that's great. Isaac, you've been very, very generous with your time and your insights today. Thanks so much for sharing your experience, and we'll certainly look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Thanks, Tom. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.